Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel. Today my guest is Dr. Simon Blackburn. I will just do a quick introduction to him. Uh, Dr. Simon Blackburn taught philosophy at the University of Cambridge. He is a distinguished research professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also a fellow of Trinity College and a member of the Professoriate of New College of the Humanities. He was previously a fellow of Pembroke College and has also taught full-time at the University of North Carolina as an Edna J. Curry professor. He is a former president of the Aristotelian Society. He was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 2002 as well as a Foreign Honorary Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2008. Dr. Blackburn, it's really an honor to have you on. Thank you for coming. It's very kind of you. Okay so, okay, so I invited you to talk a little bit about meta-ethics. So yes. just for people to, who, who don't know about it, could you please tell us what exactly meta-ethics uh, deals with? Yes, the contrast is between what is sometimes called first-order ethics and meta-ethics. First-order ethics is the kind of question you get into when you ask, is something permitted? Is it obligatory? Is it uh, impermissible? It's wrong. Um, so, for example, there are debates about whether say, early-term abortion is permissible, um, that women ought to be allowed to have the choice, or whether it ought to be illegal, which some people think, and um, similar questions. So those are direct questions about what ought to happen, or what ought to be the case, or what people ought to do. And similarly, there are issues which aren't so much about oughts, but are about what's good, or bad, or better, or worse. Is it better to give money to my children or to give money to charity? Is it better to um, uh, look after my, you know, immediate family or look after the world, look after the polar bears or, or give money to Greenpeace or something? So there's the, the question about what is better or good or better to do and question about what you ought to do or must do. And those are questions for first order ethics. Second order ethics asks about the status of our answers to those questions. Are they subjective? Are they matters of culture and history? Are there, is there any hope for objectivity in ethics? Is there any hope for proof? Is there even a notion of truth about these matters? Um, and those are questions about the status, if you like, of ethical discourse and the typical opponents in this sort of area. Some philosophers say, yes, we are realists. We think there's a real issue here. The real truth is fact. Other philosophers say, no, it's a matter of opinion. It's just a matter of attitude or a matter of emotion even. And um, therefore, there'll be never any resolution. There'll be never any proofs or any even good arguments on one side or the other. So that's the, that's the, that's the ground. Mm -hmm. The meta-ethics, I mean meta meaning here about, it actually means after in Greek, but still, um, because Aristotle's books on metaphysics came after the books on physics. 
that um, meta-ethics means about ethics. It's about its status. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, um, if you don't mind, I would like to go perhaps through some of the main sources that people resort to when they're trying to create or justify an ethical system. So, yes. uh, in my case, I'm particularly interested in what comes from evolutionary psychology or evolutionary mm -hmm. theory, because there, there are a lot of scientists nowadays uh, that try to say or to imply that uh, evolutionary psychology by itself, uh, by virtue of uh, telling us uh, how because we, we evolved in a highly complex social environment, we developed moral sentiments. And, and they say that these moral sentiments are at the basis of the ethical systems we construct. And then also during evolution, we eventually developed the capacity for abstraction and rationalization and that would be another thing to put into the equation. But uh, so uh, I guess that what I would like to ask you about this is, would our evolved moral sentiments have been enough to create moral systems? Well, I think so. I mean, something has created them. So presumably it's a combination of evolutionary factors and perhaps historical and cultural factors. I think we, I, I mean, I like the idea of evolutionary ethics, but I don't like forgetting the possibility of a contribution from um, social history, from culture, from uh, perhaps the peculiar situations of different, um, uh, different parts of humanity. Um, so people sometimes think that um, uh, for example, the Inuit who live in the Arctic have a very different sort of sense of survival and therefore different attitudes to life and death uh, than those of us who live in more sort of um, comfortable circumstances. Um, and but, but all that will be a function of environment, pressures, society, culture. We've got where we are, not by magic. Not because we've got a sky hook to, up to God telling us what to do. We've got where we are because of history. And um, I think any any uh, evidence or data from history is very welcome. I'm, in, I'm a naturalist in the sense I think it's nature that's made, made us how we are. And um, yes, our attitudes and sentiments and moral feelings are part of our natures. Mm -hmm. But would the moral sentiments that we evolved have been enough, for example, for us to create uh, moral systems as complex as we have today, including, for example, human rights? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I think, I'm not sure our moral systems are all that complicated. Um, because as soon as people try to get beyond very simple utilitarianism or very, very, very simple sort of lists of prohibitions like the Ten Commandments, um, it proves very difficult to systematize 
and ethics in a way that even a significant number of people are going to agree with. So, so I think I'm a bit careful about the idea of moral system, but there's no doubt we have lots of attitudes, and some of those attitudes get expressions in notions like human rights. And this is the idea that there's, a, there's some things which people owe to each other, and that they must uh, offer to each other. It's other people's due that they're behaved to in a certain way, they're treated a certain way. So if I say it's a human right not to be tortured, um, it's the flip side of saying everybody ought not to torture anybody else, which I believe, actually. Um, and, um, you know, I can campaign for that. I can um, give money to Amnesty International. I can uh, avoid going to countries which behave badly in this respect, um, and so on. So. So sure, it's a notion that I can deploy. I use that notion. And um, obviously I, I stand by it and it's an important part of my, my self-image, my, my persona. Um, would evolution be enough or evolution in society and culture be enough to give me that notion? Well, it has been enough. I mean, it's, it's not an accident that I have it and many other people have it. Um, and of course, even people who don't, um, who aren't very strong, let us say, on the rights of others, are often very hot about their own rights. <laughs> it's a, it's a natural asymmetry, just as we're selfish, that we get very hot under the collar very quickly when our own rights have been infringed, even if we're a bit lukewarm about infringing the rights of others. And that's, that's part of what ethics is there to try to cure. Um, we're not a naturally a tremendously nice animal. Um, and uh, one of the things ethics tries to impose is a sense of, um, well, a sort of Kantian sense in, 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 of um, it not being appropriate. I can't, I can't do anything. I can't, I can't admire anything unless I can admire it equally for all people. There's a kind of um, universality built into our moral notions. So if I claim a right for myself that you don't tread on my toe, then I ought to recognize that you've got a right against me that I don't tread on your toe. Um, that's just a, a kind of piece of the logic of ethics, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and now perhaps a question about reason, because uh, when people talk about the importance of philosophy in developing ethical systems, Uh, yes. They tend to focus a lot on the role of reason in yeah. philosophy. And I mean, uh, recently I've read uh, Dan Sperber's and Hugo Mercier's book, The Enigma of Reason, and they collect a large amount of scientific data to show that um, reason is not absolutely reliable uh, in terms of trying to take to think impartially uh, that reason operates operates much more with the end of producing rationalizations to our behavior after the fact and that uh, in trying to reach impartial conclusions about truth and reality and so on it operates much better in groups of people with different ideas and different temperaments and so on but 
Okay, but this is the scientific perspective on, on it. But from a philosophical perspective, what would be the limitations that reason has? Right. Well, in a sense, I think reason suffers from the same kind of debates that ethics does. Because reason, as I see it, is a normative term. I think, um, I think we shouldn't think of reason as a sort of little um, rational person inside the head, um, which is distinct from emotion and attitude and all the other cultural uh, arrivals in our minds. Um, I think we just we talk of reason when we talk of one uh, consideration being a reason for another. So I talk of um, the fact that it's going to rain today is a reason for cancelling the picnic. The fact that it's going to rain may be a reason for carrying an umbrella, especially in England. Um, on the other hand, you know the fact that we're running out of sprouts may be a reason to go to the shops. I mean, the, what I do is identify a consideration as bearing favorably on a plan or an intention or a desire or a, a belief. Um, so I see reason as um, something that we talk about reason when we're advancing considerations for or against particular intentions, plans, pro propositions and beliefs. Um, now, of course, the trouble is that reason then is as contested as other parts of ethics. And in a sense, you can see reason as a word in which we do ethics for the mind, ethics for things like beliefs, attitudes, judgments, and so on. Um, so um, if, I, if you say that um, you know, the fact that uh, you're treading on my toe is no reason for you to move, Obviously, I think that's a really bad judgment of yours, um, but it's not a judgment I might find it easy to shift. I mean, I can't just say, reason tells me that it is. You say, no, I don't see that any reasons. Uh, I might like to shift my foot off yours, but I, if I don't like to, I don't see that reason has anything to do with it. So reason is as contestable as other moral and ethical and normative judgments. Basically, reason is in the space of norms. We, we like to insist on norms of reason. Um, so, for example, I think that um, if somebody believes in the young earth creationists, say in America, somebody they believe that the earth is about 6,000 years old, because that's, that accords with sort of biblical chronology. Um, I think they're completely mad, completely unreasonable. Um, there's a huge amount of authoritative science that tells us that it's about four and a half billion years old, four and a half thousand billion years old. Um, so they take something as a reason, as a strong reason for believing one thing, and I think it's no reason at all. Um, I could call them unreasonable, um, but to prove that they're unreasonable, I have to go into the detail, the number of uniformities of nature, a number of scientific laws or apparent laws, which all converge on telling us that the age of the Earth is many thousands of millions years old, four and a half thousand million. Um, evidence from isotopes, ev evidence from radioactivity, evidence from strat 
stratigraphic analysis, evidence from evolutionary history, all those point in the same direction. Uh, and against that, they have one book or two books, the, the Judaic record of kings and things. Uh, and I say, well, that, that just doesn't stand against it. It's totally unreasonable to take that as definitive in a way that the science is definitive. But they're going to say, no, it's not. <laughs> the, the Bible or the Torah is the word of God, and you know, God tells us that it's 6,000 years old, that's the end of it. And of course, I think that's unreasonable. So we go on. But the argument goes on about reason just as badly as it goes on about, um, um, you know, whether it's okay to uh, um, treat prisoners a certain way or whether it's okay to um, eat in restaurants while other people are starving across the world. So, so ethics and judgments of reason, I think, are un un unhappily quite alike. Now you're right that there's been a movement in philosophy quite, really quite recent, I think, which tries to say that reasons, that virtually every normative issue is better discussed in terms of reasons. And I'm not sure that's true. I don't think it's an advantage. Um, you could do it, but I'm not sure it's getting you any further. Uh, because reason doesn't stand like the voice of God telling everybody the same thing. Well, the voice of God never does that, but, um, but people like to think of it as doing so. Mm -hmm. God tells different people lots of different things. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so um, there are people, and I don't know if I'm going to be a bit unfair here or not, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but there are people that uh, it seems to me uh, look at reason uh, as if it was a tele a teleological. Uh, so, for ex so, for example, uh, Peter Singer in the book The Expanding Circle uh, a, a kind of says that one reason uh, in the evolutionary scene uh, get, gets put into place cognitively in our minds when it evolves, that because we have this sense that when people, when other people behave towards us in a certain manner uh, that we don't like it, mm -hmm. and and then also because we have kin selection and reciprocal altruism, we then expand it to our families and friends. And mm -hmm. when reason gets into the picture, that it would be kind of inevitable that we would expand these rights, these ways we think that we shouldn't treat ourselves, our family and our friends to eventually the entire humanity. So what would you say about that? Well, I mean, Peter is following, a, a, I mean, he's a utilitarian in the sense that he, his ultimate ethical standard is welfare, the welfare of sentient creatures. Um, but in that respect, in respect of the, uh, the universalization properties of reason, he's following the Kantian tradition. I mean, I think the first person to hope to get substantive moral claims um, simply out of the conception, a conception of reason um, was probably Immanuel Kant. I mean, Aristotle thinks it's reasonable to be good um, but he, I don't think Aristotle thought that 
reason had a kind of authority that determined ethics, whereas I think Kant did think that, and I think Peter Singer thinks that. Um, I don't think it's right. I mean, it seems to me, first of all, I don't, it's not at all, I think, consistent with an evolutionary picture, because an evolutionary picture, typically, if, if you talk about human life as we best understand it to have been in the millennia before history began, um, was almost certainly tribal. And if there's one thing that a tribal ethic gives you, it's not an expanding circle, it's a tight circle. You might um, have reciprocal relations with your kin and with other members of the tribe, with your society. But when you come across other societies, by and large, you kill them. I mean, it's, uh, this is how chimpanzees behave, and it's very likely how people behaved in the early days of humanity. I mean, all the evidence from um, not just fossils, but uh, prehistoric bones and so on, suggests violence was the norm. It was the, the way people behaved, by and large. Many, many people are, you know, found in uh, prehistoric tombs and so on who have been killed in quite nasty ways with blunt axes and stone tools and have their throats cut and God knows what. So, so I think we've got to be very careful about, um, you know, this rather um, automatic expansion of the circle. Um, and still today, you look at uh, uh, someone like Donald Trump, he doesn't care a hoot about the rest of the world. He wants America first. He's a perfect example of a tribal leader um, with a large tribe, admittedly, but still a tribal leader. And he doesn't care about separating Mexican kids from their parents, doing terrible things to prisoners, um, all kinds of stuff, if it can be seen to the benefit of his tribe. Um, but... If Peter comes along and tells Donald Trump that he's being irrational, Trump will say, no, I, I put America first. This is my priority. This is the... and so on. And of course, a lot of Republicans agree with him, unfortunately. So I think the world is, is not hospitable to the, any idea that the expanding circle is automatic. I think it's got to be really worked for. You've got to shift people's attitudes. Um, but getting all people to feel like brothers and sisters is a matter of shifting attitudes. There's no syllogism which tells them that that's true. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, okay, so now another question would be, can we derive an entire an ethical system just from science and scientific facts? No, um, the the old is ought gap. Um, yeah. It can be criticised. It's got to be very carefully framed and so on. But basically, there's there's always going to be a bridge between what the facts are like and how you care about them. Um, uh, that that's obvious in what we just said about the expanding circle. Um, Peter Singer can point out that. Uh, welfare is increased um, across the world if America doesn't behave with you know, trade, tar trade tariffs and trade wars and so on. 
Um, and that's very nice, and um, it will impress a lot of us, it would impress me, but there's no, um, no syllogism, no algorithm for making it impress uh, Mr. Trump. Um, he's going to persist in believing the other thing because uh, his basic ideology is selfish and tribal and nationalistic, and, um, and that's true of his followers. And like any democratic politician, he's got to appeal to his followers. That's <laughs> 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 <was> very sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, okay, so... so um... I think Peter Sagan was writing in a more optimistic age than the actually. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the expanding circle was out perhaps 30 years ago or, or even yeah. more, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Welfare states, um, you know, the United Nations, all sorts of things were very hopeful signs. But now they've gone into reverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But, okay, so would you say that uh, the reason why we can't derive a complete uh, ethical system from science is because uh, if we go along with science, we obtain an infinite or nearly infinite amount of facts about the world. And to create an ethical system, we have to choose between yeah. those facts. I think that's absolutely right. Um... I mean, and, and also the facts don't always point in a, a desirable direction. Let me give you an example. Um, it's a, a, a paradox, a difficulty of uh, economic savings theory. Um, how much should we spend and how much should we save for the benefit of future generations? Well, now, if you suppose that the return is positive, that is, every dollar invested um, will give a, return, a positive return, so it will give the next generation slightly more than a dollar. Um, and if you suppose that generations are going to go on forever, uh, you, you rapidly get the result that you should never spend any money. You should save it all, because the net human welfare over generations is going to be increased if money doesn't disappear in consumption. If it's invested for the sake of the future, you're always going to get an expanding pot. Um, so, you know, if you suppose that welfare varies with wealth, you get the paradoxical result that it's never right to save anything. Okay, so I guess we were talking about science, scientific facts, the possibility yeah. of deriving ethical systems from science. Uh, mm. And I guess that the next question I would pose is, so we can't derive an entire ethical system just out of scientific facts, because one of the main reasons is that we would have an infinite set of scientific facts, and yeah. we, sh we would need to have beforehand uh, axio uh, moral axioms, to yeah. be able to choose among them. Yes, right. yes. I mean, um, 
you know, the history of ethics shows us a lot of this. Um, as I expect your, your listeners know, um, Jeremy Bentham, one of the first utilitarians, thought that it was all straightforward. You could just observe, in a sense, you observed happiness and you maximized it, and that was the end of it. And of course, in, almost immediately, uh, first of all, John Stuart Mill realized that happiness is not a, a common currency. It doesn't, it doesn't work like a, um, uh, you know, a number of, um, dollar bills that you have, um, because it's a very variable thing. There's so-called higher pleasures, lower pleasures. They're pleasures which you wouldn't give up for anything. And they're pleasures which you don't care very much about. Um, and, uh, and of course, then the distributions of happiness. There's some people you might think who don't deserve to be happy because, for example, their happiness lies in domination of others. They're not happy unless they're cock of the walk. Does their happiness matter? Um, they're not happy unless they're sadists and inflicting pain on other people. Does that happiness matter? So on. So the happiness of the, um, the Roman crowds looking at gladiatorial fights, that's not a very edifying thing to maximize. So, um, so you, you really have to be very careful about thinking that it's simple. Um, because the entire history of ethics shows that it's not. Um, and so the, the science is not going to charge it with a, um, you know, an objective and um, empirical answer to these questions. Mm -hmm. And do these moral axioms that we have to have before and in trying to set an ethical system uh, have to be uh, always uh, self-evidently true and uh, universalizable or not? No, I don't think so. I think that, um, uh, I mean, again, going back to Bentham and Mill, their hope was for a, a kind of axiomatic system. You'd have an overarching principle, the principle of utility, you somehow frame it so plausible and you could derive moral results from that. Um, more and more moral thinkers, not just myself, but others, have gone back to what's in effect a much more Aristotelian picture in which we have quite a lot of values. Some of them cohere together, um, some of them conflict. Um, so there may be a trade-off uh, in our own lives, we know that there's a trade-off between uh, how much effort you expend on your friends, how much effort you expend on your family, how much effort you expend on yourself. Um, and these things may look different at different times. And the idea of a system just waiting to be axiomatized and then in some sort of computing way churning out answers to practical problems has appealed to very few people in recent uh, moral philosophy. Um, going back to Aristotle, you find you start in the middle of things uh, in medias res. That is, you start um, making judgments, and then you realize that it's difficult to make your judgments all coherent. So you start to tinker and 
gradually you hope to build up a kind of organic set of, maybe even principles is the wrong word, principles is very contested uh, in moral philosophy, but an organic set of judgments with a, at least a pattern to them. Some things you regard as important, other things you don't regard as so important. Some things take priority over others, and so on. So you get a nest or a, uh, an amalgam of um, what are sometimes called prima facie results or prima facie duties. And um, your best hope is that your overall system is defensible. But it won't be defensible because it's um, derived from few simple self-evident axioms. That's, that's I think, a, a will of the wisp, a pie, pie in the sky. <laughs> yes, but uh, when we talk about the ontological ethics, and perhaps a good example of it would be human rights, because yeah. I, I mean, we, we, if we are to have human rights, they have to be based on certain moral values, which mm -hmm. we cannot really question. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, it may be that, a, a, for example, a tribunal, a court of law, um, that has to work with codified laws, with, um, and those are going to have a kind of absolute flavor, they'll have an absolute core. Um, but even courts of law um, find that it's not easy to draw up the rules. Um, if you, um, uh, I mean, for, I mean, this may be a slightly absurd example, but I think it makes the point. Um, you'd think it might be quite easy for a government. Um, a government is there for the welfare of the people. Let's say that's what it has to do. Uh, to promote that welfare, it needs welfare. It needs various things like um, police, it needs a judiciary, it needs um, defence, it needs um, the, the, to attend the welfare of the people by, by medical um, uh, services and so on. For all that, it needs taxation. It needs resources to enable it to perform those tasks. So you might think that it would be quite simple to develop a tax code. It's not. The, the English, uh, the British tax code, I believe, now runs to 17,000 pages. Mm. Yes. Uh, no, no one person can master it. Uh, you have to have specialist accountants, accountants who deal with corporation tax, accountants who deal with inheritance tax, accountants who deal with this, that, and the other. So, so it's, uh, it, it proves incredibly difficult. And every time a government thinks, well, this would be a fair, fair taxation system, tax I don't know, the, the rich more than the poor, for example, that sounds like a good principle. Um, but then you come to the idea that, well, we we want to incentivize people. We want. We don't want the rich just to stop working, because we're taking all their money in tax. Uh, or, um, of course, if you're in a competitive economy, you don't want companies to go abroad because they're overtaxed. So you want them to uh, pay just the right amount of tax, and then you get um, different industries making different claims, and so on. So complexity builds and builds and builds. Um, 
and eventually finding any rhyme or reason in those 17,000 pages, it's going to be <laughs> most impossible. <laughs> and that's, a, I think that's a model for human life, I'm afraid. It is a bit like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, perhaps a question, a question that I would pose now is, uh, has there any been really um, uh, an ethical system with um, rules, let's put it that way, yeah. that, uh, that add really no exceptions whatsoever. So, for example, when referring to these people, usually give the example of religion as having a set of moral truths mm -hmm. that are set in place, supposedly, no. by God. Uh, and that uh, th they have no exceptions whatsoever. But e even religious people uh, do, um, usually don't really universalize their set of moral truths to, to encompass the entirety of humanity, right? No, and even the rules that we have got admit of um, elasticity. Uh, exceptions. I mean, the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Yeah. Um, okay, what about Christian wars? That been, what about uh, Islam? What about, I mean, uh, God may tell you not to kill, but he doesn't tell you exactly what the, what the limits of the <laughs> are. Um, now, of course, uh, it's possible to be an absolute pacifist, saying that we, we, we must never kill. Um, but then you might get cases, you know, where mercy killing is suggested. The usual case is um, uh, the lorry driver, the truck driver, who is caught in a burning cab, and you can't get him out, but you could shoot him. Uh, otherwise, he's going to slowly burn to death. It would seem the right thing to do would be to shoot him. And uh, if, if your religion says, no, no, you can't do that, then I think so much the worse for your religion. It's, it's, uh, it's giving you a false certainty, a certainty which the case does not admit of. Um, and similar for many cases. Um, you know, obviously, uh, some religionists take uh, a shall not kill to apply to very early term babies, uh, fetuses. Um, Others say, no, no, it only applies to persons, and these things are not yet persons. They're, they're more like eggs or acorns than they're, they're like uh, chickens or oak trees. So it's, um, uh, it, it always le leads to um, hard cases. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we talk about religion mm -hmm. in ethical terms and from a philosophical perspective, would you say that um, what we call religious is not really referring to uh, an, a moral system that is absolutist, but rather that it is justified on the basis of some sort of di um, divine character, for example, a god? Well, I think people, I, th I mean, I believe that a religion is basically a second-hand philosophy. It's um, it's a, it's a it's a set of ideas about how to live, which is drummed up and 
um, impressed in people's minds by the devices of religious conversion, religious authority, religious instruction. Um, so typically a religion would hope to get hold of people at a very young age. It impresses on them the character of sacred things in, in that, that society. And they go away convinced that there's an authority which has told them that uh, killing is wrong, or that adultery is wrong, or that coveting your neighbor's ass is wrong. And, um, uh, and, and they, they believe that without any further thought. And that's no doubt from a sort of evolutionary point of view, maybe quite functional. Maybe good that enough people in the society have rather a simple, fairly well understood set of rules, and they try to live by that. Um, and there's there's evidence actually, I think, that um, um, communities and societies that are, have that kind of ethos um, do better than ones which uh, are secular and educated and in which everybody tries to think for themselves. But um, but I prefer the second sort of society. I uh, I don't like the idea of um, uh, just marching in step like an army uh, of, of thoughtless sort of zombies. Um, that's not enlightenment, as Kant said. Um, that's uh, that's uh, turning people into um, ciphers. And it's very dangerous because, of course, the next thing that happens is a uh, maybe a theological leader or maybe a secular leader. Um, comes along, often harnesses the authority of the church, and then all hell breaks loose. I mean, that's the way fascism worked. Uh, that's the way dictatorships worked in Spain and Portugal. Um, the church collaborated with uh, some pretty nasty regimes. And of course, once you think that right is on your side, you think you're permitted to do anything to crush dissent and to crush opposition. So I think that the authoritarian tendencies of human beings are very badly served. They're aided by um, the authority of uh, theocracies and priests. And I think that's a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. Very, very dangerous thing.